Welcome to LilyPod episode 89, Loss and Cognitive Distortions. Jeff and Kathy Teichert, bringing you another episode of LilyPod, a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches, authors of the Amazon bestseller Intentional Courtship, and members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Before we dive into this episode, I just wanted to give a quick introduction to this topic. This is the first episode that we have recorded and released since finding out that Jeff's 24-year-old son had passed away tragically on August 28, 2022. This episode is probably the most emotional and personal episode we've ever done. And we are really grateful to have the opportunity to share a bit of our hearts with you. We know a lot of our listeners have experienced loss in their own life. So we hope this will touch your hearts and give you hope for the bright future that we know can come even after the most agonizing and painful losses in life. Please forgive the sound quality. We don't know what happened. This is the first time in 89 episodes that we've ever had this happen, but it kind of sounds like we're a little muffled and we're using the same microphone we used on several other episodes that we recorded at the same time. So we're not sure what happened, but we wanted to keep the authenticness of the episode intact. So we hope you'll bear with the sound, poor sound quality and enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome Lilypod listeners to another episode of Lilypod. And today we are talking about cognitive distortions. And if you don't know what that means, you will before this episode is over. I'm going to give you a pretty plain definition. And I just pulled this from Wikipedia, but it is consistent with my understanding of what these are. Quote, A cognitive distortion is an exaggerated or irrational thought pattern involved in the onset or perpetuation of psychopathological states such as depression and anxiety. Cognitive distortions are thoughts that cause individuals to perceive reality inaccurately. So a cognitive distortion is a a thought or belief that something is a certain way when it's not Uh, because our mind, our brain tends to overgeneralize the fear response to keep us safe. So um, if we're in a situation that isn't dangerous, we might feel endangered because something triggered us. Uh, I mean, for example, you're, out riding your bike, you almost get hit by a car. For a few minutes after, you might be breathing heavy because you had a close call, even though 
you're not still in danger. So uh, those can become entrenched when we've experienced trauma so that they can be brought up. I mean, Kathy had a car accident a few years ago. She still has certain fear responses triggered when she sees certain things on the road. Uh, that's an example of a cognitive distortion, even if she's not really in very much danger. So uh, how does this apply to us? Well, one way is that uh, during a tragic loss, and that could be a death or a divorce or the failure of a love relationship that you had high hopes for. It could be any major loss. I mean, uh, within a few weeks uh, of this recording, I, some of you know, I lost my son in a climbing accident, a very painful situation. Now, a lot of parents, when they're faced with that, will say, it isn't supposed to be this way. Uh, you know, something has gone really wrong here. I shouldn't, as a parent, have to bury my child. And that's the exact thought I had that night that we got the news. Even though we've taught people who are divorced that if it is has already happened, if the divorce is already part of your life path, then it's meant to be that way. That it isn't, doesn't mean your life is broken. It doesn't mean that something went horribly wrong. It was part of your learning and growth. And that must be true for us, but that's still, we're still human. And that initial thought, parents shouldn't have to bury their children. That, like, in fact, my best friend called it ridiculous the other day. She said, it's just, I mean, there's hard things in life and we all expect that, but that's absolutely ridiculous. Right. And, you know, whether it's ridiculous or not, whether we should or not, <laughs> is, you know, we do, we can have compassion about those human thoughts that come up. But if we stay stuck in them, if, if we felt for years and years and years that Henry shouldn't have died, you know, we're going to cause ourselves a lot of dirty pain, a lot of unnecessary anguish and heartache as we resist the reality of what is. Right. And we can interpret dating relationships or even marriage relationships in a way that is distorted too. And that's why particularly with mid-singles and former mid-singles that are remarried or married for the first time, uh, we can experience, we, we may have experienced trauma in the past. <clears throat> and when we see something or experience something that reminds us of that trauma, we could uh, be triggered and inclined to lash out irrationally um, in, and, in whatever way. And what we do with our minds in response to this can be intentional and for the purpose of healing another layer. Uh, because I believe that when things come up, that gives us an opportunity to heal it more. Uh, or we can freak out and assume that we're just back at square one and we just got a big setback. Right. You know, there's a, a story that we've sometimes told about cognitive distortions about a time when, when I was visiting Kathy, uh, we were planning to go to breakfast on Saturday morning. We ended up 
spending Friday evening together, which hadn't been planned, but I met her kids for the first time. and uh, We were being spontaneous. We spent five hours. Yeah, we spent five hours working, uh, or just talking. You know, I put helped her put the kids to bed, and then we talked. And, you know, it was probably 12 or 1 by the time I got out of there. And as I was leaving, Kathy said, you know, we should probably cancel our breakfast tomorrow because I don't want to be up late. And then have to be up early on a morning when I or on a weekend when I have the kids, which is totally reasonable, right? I mean, not a not a unreasonable thing to do or think at all. So why was I triggered by it? Well, I have I had issues with abandonment, and it seemed like she was abandoning our plan and. You know, I'm one of these people that when I make a plan, I like to carry through it and know that we're going to do it, actually do it. And, and I actually am the same way, but I also know I need that sleep. Right. Well, and, and I don't say there was anything wrong with, with what Kathy did, but I was triggered. And for three quarters of the way, driving to my brother's house, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes away, I, I was thinking of ways to break up with her thinking that I needed to, you know, my brain is telling me, you got to end this now. This woman is dangerous. It was preemptive rejection. <laughs> you were afraid of the rejection, so you were going to reject first. It was a preemptive strike. Right. It's my brain overprotecting me. And so, but ultimately, I came to my senses, and I'm like, wait a second. We just spent five hours together on a, a weekend uh, where she had her kids instead of having a one hour breakfast the next morning. Well, so that was a good trade, right? If she had said, Hey, you can either come over on Friday night and we'll spend five hours and you'll meet my kids and we'll talk uh, into the night, or you can uh, have a one hour breakfast right before the baptism you're going to. To me, that's an easy decision. And if I had to pick between those two, I would certainly have picked, the option of coming over and meeting the kids and all that. So it, you know, that was the truth and the reality of the situation. And the only reason it wasn't discussed in that way was because we were being spontaneous. Right. And so, I mean, it, it's not a cognitive distortion. You don't have to think of it as somebody, you know, that needs to be put in a straitjacket and kept in a rubber room. It's not, you know, it's not saying that there you've got some serious mental health problem but if you've been hurt in a prior relationship uh, you know you're going to be <clears throat> extra sensitive to the things that you understand to be the cause of that pain in the first place you know i'd love to just share some of the thoughts that we had or at least that i had in the first week after we found out Henry had passed. Okay. And then I'd like to share some of the thoughts that I feel are probably more supportive to our healing. Um, so let, let me just share a few. So to go back to the parents shouldn't bury their children. I remember that just being so strong in my mind and I could not come with, up with a one word emotion. Like what's really interesting is how, how many things both before and after corresponded with this event we didn't know was going to happen in our right. lives. And one of them was 
um, I, I, I've been practicing processing emotion. Right. The whole entire previous month. And there's a lot of emotion that goes <laughs> with losing a loved one. And I sometimes like to avoid my feelings and not deal with them. And I don't, I'm not very well versed in vo the vocabulary of emotion. There, there are so many emotion words and there are always one word. And I couldn't come up with a word. I, I mean, maybe my best friend who said it's ridiculous. The parents shouldn't go bury their children. I don't, maybe that's the closest emotional word I can come up with. Uh, devastating doesn't seem to cover it, right? Right. Uh, but my former least, wife used the word, I feel annihilated. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a, a even that probably doesn't cover it either. But no. I think as strongly of an emotional word that you can get, that's how we felt in the more, right? Right. So parents shouldn't bury their children very, a very bad feeling, right? I mean, it, it's like something just happened to me that shouldn't have happened. And then almost exactly a week later, we had um, priesthood leaders in our ward show up to give you a blessing. I, they'd been trying all week, but our schedules had been off and they showed up at almost the same time the cops had showed up at our house to give us the right and it felt very comforting for them to be there during that time because we were already kind of marking the okay it's been a week or through the first week and one of them said i don't remember if it was before or after the blessing they gave, gave you what was they said because they'd had death in their family i believe it was his his dad or his stepdad and his mom had lost her husband and he's, he feels very strongly that God doesn't take anyone before their time. And when he said it, it really resonated with me. And if that's true, then the thought that parents shouldn't bury their children can't be really true. That has to be a cognitive distortion because if God doesn't take anyone before their time, and we know throughout history, God has taken children before their parents, then then I guess parents should bury their children. I mean, first of all, who else is better than parents to bury their children, literally, but I also, we should because that's the reality. Right. And if God knows what he's doing and there is an afterlife, then there's, there's purpose for all of it. Right. And maybe you could share a little bit about some thoughts you've had even about maybe what his purpose is, if you'd like. Well, I, you know, as I've thought about it, there could be a number of different reasons. And I don't, I don't claim to have figured it all out. I, I thought it was interesting that when we arrived at the chapel the day of the funeral, I met up with my ex-wife in the hall and we hugged. And it was the longest, most sincere hug that we've had since she got, uh, since, since we split up. It was actually the morning and, of the funeral. It yeah, was before. It was before. Yeah. And, and then after the funeral had just concluded, I was walking down off of the stand and my former wife's husband came up and gave me a big bear hug. And you know, there's history there and everything, but 
we were all united that day by our lo common love of my son. And so it, it was sharing the grief together. And I think sometimes a tragedy can put in perspective uh, how, um, how little some of our differences really are, how unimportant many of the things that we choose to be angry or upset about really are. And, um, well, and to go along with that, I actually had someone point out when I shared this with them that God doesn't take anyone down a wrong path either. Right. So for whatever path you are on in life, if it feels wrong, trust that God has a purpose in it for you. Right. And it gives us an opportunity for joy that we wouldn't have if we don't understand that. You know, it, another little experience that seems almost um, too coincidental to be a coincidence, my son, uh, Errol, walked into his brother's room uh, after he got up to, to Washington for the funeral proceedings. Uh, and he walked into his brother's room and he noticed his brother's scriptures uh, sitting on the nightstand. And I guess he picked them up and there was a bookmark and he, he shared at the funeral that the bookmark was right immediately following what he had been reading about something about life after death and I asked him afterward what he specifically had had been reading what the passage was and he said it was Doctrine and Covenants section 76 which is uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon's vision of the plan of salvation and the three degrees of glory and all of that um, in fact the early saints called that revelation the vision that was what they named it. And so uh, apparently my son had been reading that shortly before he passed. He had been coming back to the church. He had left it for several years, and but he was he was coming to institute and reading his scriptures and, and even attending church, which, uh, you know, if you had told me a couple of years ago that that was going to be the case, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um. One more little uh, coincidence that I think is almost too coincidental to be coincidental. Um, it was uh, Saturday, uh, the 27th of August. And I was trying to put together a meeting with, with my cousin, who's also my best friend other than my wife, Kathy. And this cousin said, we're going to be really busy for the next few weeks because my partner, my business partner's son was just killed in a dirt bike accident. And, uh, and he was also very supportive of his partner. They're good friends as well. And, and uh, he's close in age to my son that was also killed. And, and we had this back and forth conversation on the 27th. And uh, at 10 p.m. that night, I, I just texted him and I said, I've been worried about Henry, something happening like that, you know, to him. For you. Yeah. 
And well, that's that's what I usually say. Although at the time I think it was more cryptic. I just said something like, "I worry about Henry that way" or something. And that was ten o'clock that evening, and I didn't know it yet. But Henry had probably passed prior to me even sending that text. And so, both of these young men were taken in violent tragedies, and. On they the were taken day. the same day and uh, you know they were henry was taken you know unbeknownst to me a few hours before i expressed worry about him over that well what does this all mean i told uh, my cousin's partner who uh, i i know but less well than my cousin does you know i told him it almost seems like these two got some kind of mission call and they're going to be companions or they're supposed to do this together because they had so much in common. You know, they were both fearless daredevils. and So they're going to maybe and, go to the most dangerous parts of the afterworld. And that's what the, uh, that's what the other um, young man's father said to me is, yeah, I can just see them volunteering to go to the deepest, darkest part of spirit prison the place where all the souls are that everybody else thinks is irredeemable and try to save their souls by bringing them to Christ, you know? And uh, uh, in a way that terrifies me and in another way, it totally makes sense. <laughs> it rings true to me. So yeah, take, take their, uh, what, what most parents would consider to be a, uh, a lack of judgment on their part to right. use it as a gift um, to to do the scary things. Right. I mean, it would take a fearless person to volunteer for that kind of of a mission, and and uh, somebody who's up for a challenge. And I will say, I, I said this at the funeral too. My son Henry was probably the toughest person I've ever met. Um, the most stubborn. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, he had a very tender heart. He was very kind, um, but very willful. And, you know, he uh, if he set his mind to something, he could do about anything. So, like I said, to, to perform a mission like the one that my cousin's partner came up with uh, would take somebody that was kind of fearless and brave and relentless and and very tough and so i could totally see what he was saying being true for our two sons well and i'll just go back to the thought that resonated a couple weeks prior to that conversation i should say this too uh, and then I'll, I'll let you jump in with that ask yourself is the thought that he may be serving that kind of a mission on the other side is that a more supportive thought than this wasn't supposed to happen? Not to me, not to my son. Or, you know, you're not supposed, parents aren't supposed to bury their children. Which is the more hopeful thought? That he's off somewhere being a hero? Or that this was just all a terrible mistake? Right. I think the explanation that, that he is off, somewhere on a heroic mission um, 
is a much more supportive thought than the other ones I described. Well, as is, God doesn't take anyone before their time. And right. it and it corresponds perfectly with that statement that I connected with. I mean, a couple of weeks before. And right. now we're finding something maybe more specific to a, a more specific thought that goes with it, right? Right. And I, there's one thing I want to be really clear about with this. Adopting supportive thoughts doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And it also um, doesn't mean it's guaranteed to be reality, but all of our thoughts are optional. Right. All of the things we put as interpretations on events are a choice. Right. That's a matter of what you choose to believe, and that's what faith is. And, you know, it can't be independently verified. Um, so the the question is you know what am i going to choose to believe i had believed for years that henry was coming back to the church and, and for, that didn't make it for sure that it was going to happen no but, but i had a strong conviction of it and i chose to hold on to that and ultimately he did and but it doesn't mean if you if you adopt supportive thoughts that it doesn't hurt anymore okay that's all fixed he's on a mission in the spirit world i'll go tiptoe through the tulips no it's it's not like that in fact i um, I, I knew this because I also lost uh, my youngest brother, who was nine years younger than me, to cancer when he was only 17 years old. A very difficult time. Well, I, I've never gotten over that completely. I mean, it's, you know, I'm able to be happy again, uh, notwithstanding that. But you, you learn to live with it. And you learn to, that the, the, the really painful intensity of, of that experience fades a little bit and, and it's sort of replaced by a mournful longing well I'm, and that's not there every minute either but you know when you lose a child that's going to be a lifetime of grieving but it doesn't have to be a lifetime of mourning yes and i you know and, i actually kind of want to go with that so there's three thoughts that we have throughout the week that i wanted to share along with the the supportive, more supportive thoughts that came that followed. And right. that goes along with what you were just saying. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I'm just going to combine two. One of them was, we should be sad and mourn forever. That And life should stop. And it did for two weeks. It really did. It stopped from what we had planned. And it was completely different than we anticipated. Right. Um, but the fact that we think we should be sad and mourn forever or that life should stop is like you said, it's temporary um, unless we make it forever. Right. And it led to, for me, it led to thought, the thought life is a gift and that we can feel motivated to live even more fully for his memory, for him, like to take all the hikes he can no longer take and enjoy it in his behalf. Like, to make it a special communion even with him um, because it was his favorite place on earth to be outdoors. Right, and I gave him that, you know. Um, at least I, I was the one who started hiking with him when he was a little boy, like seven years old, I think was when we went on our first uh, real hike together. You know, I remember losing my sister in 2007, six months after my son, my first son had been born. And I remember at that time thinking life is such a precious gift. Yeah. I will never 
take it for granted again. And I think I've, I mean, I think I've always tried to live life to the fullest, but I, I really took that to heart with her and I'm taking it to heart again with Henry. Right. You know, there's, there's another thing, and I think you can find things like this to, to hold on to, but uh, I think sometimes we hope that because we've had a tragedy in our life, we lose a little brother like I did, for example, or a little sister as Kathy did. And we think that, okay, now we're immune because we've had our share of the, of the pain and misery. And then Kathy and I each went through two divorces. And so it didn't, the events didn't stop. We didn't somehow get immune. And that's a hard truth. I mean, it really is. We would like to believe, okay, now we're done with problems because look what we've had. And, but accepting that life is uncertain, that you're not guaranteed tomorrow, you know, that is part of, of the process of maturing spiritually and otherwise. Anyway, the night that I left my second wife, and it was my choice, um, Henry was with me, and we went out to a movie before we returned to our hotel just to kind of take our mind off things. And as we're driving back to our hotel, I just I kind of broke down, you know, in tears, sobbing. And I said, Henry, I don't know how much more of this pain I can take. I feel like giving up. And Henry's words to me, he sometimes had a knack for coming up with the exact right thing to say. But this one night, which was one of the hardest nights of my life, he said, Dad, you're the most positive person I know. You can't give up. And what did he do? He reminded me of who I am, of the way that I want to show up in life. And he was right. And so if I'm in pain, if I'm sad and missing him, I'm going to remember that he said, uh, with great resilience, Dad, you're the most positive person I know. You can't give up. And isn't that a wonderful thought to hold on to, not only from that moment, but reaffirming it now? And knowing that that's what he would want for me, not, he wouldn't want me grieving forever, or well, mourning forever, and, you know, constantly being obsessed with or defined by the tragedy that ended his life. Um, he would want me to think of him with affection and fondness and joy in the, the wonderful times we had together. Which goes back to life is a gift and we can live more fully in his memory. Right. The third and final thought that I would like to share about what came up for us in that first week is happy things shouldn't happen while we're sad. Right. <laughs> and of course, you know, that's not true. Happy things like, really immensely blissful, joyful things like weddings, weddings and babies being born. Exactly. Those happen every day. Right. And death happens every day. So the reality of the situation is that we're all going to experience opposing times, but the timing of that is going to vary for each of us. Right. And so absolutely those things should be happy for other people. 
while we're sad and vice versa. If we're experiencing something blissfully happy while someone else is experiencing a loss, we should still be happy. You know, I had a real hard time navigating that uh, when my brother died back in 1993 because I had just gotten married six weeks before that. I was supposed to be still in the honeymoon phase, you know, and truth be told, for all of that time that I was engaged and then married, my brother was terminally ill and I knew it. Um, you know, that isn't to say he didn't hope for a miracle, but that's what it would have taken for him to have survived and, and that wasn't to be. So I think um, I had a really hard time thinking, how can I mourn my brother and be joyful uh, with my new wife? and happy about my wedding. And it, it felt like it at the time that I would have put her in an unfair position of being newly married to someone grieving. Uh, but I think, you know, you can in some sense be in both places at once. And I wasn't capable mm. of that at that time. But, you know, let's suppose a tragedy happens a few days before your wedding day or some other great event i mean we or, had or shortly after you get married i mean there's all sorts of timing that seems ill-suited for the situation right i mean my my son henry um flew out here for his brother's college graduation and at the time he was here they blessed their new baby uh, who was three months old at the time yeah so we were brand and, new grandparents he was a new uncle and everyone was so happy Right, he was very proud to be an uncle. And I I look at those pictures of him holding her beaming. Uh, and it's very touching. Um, and you could literally choose to be mournful and sad about that, or you could choose to be really grateful he met her and that we had those joyful moments. And you could also choose both. Yeah, I think you have both in different moments. And so the birth of our little granddaughter and her role in our life since then has been joyful. It will continue to be. And in fact, she's one of the things that brings a genuine smile to my face, even now amidst the, the difficulties we've been going through. And can I just say, as I saw her cooing and looking around with her big blue eyes, her cute little red hair, you know, white complexion. She's just adorable. And she just looked around during the funeral and she was just so blissfully ignorant of everything that was happening and all the sadness. And she was just her sweet little self. Yep. And I don't know, sometimes I wish we could be more like that. Right. And I mean, I think learning to be in those two places at once. Yeah. And, and maybe not blissfully ignorant, but aware and choosing. To, right. be, to, to, to see the tender mercies, to see the beauty in the tragedy, to see the possibilities in the loss. Right. And it, it, so I think part of learning to live with it is realizing and really accepting that, yeah, life has its painful moments. And this is certainly one of the worst, uh, you know, people every parent's worst nightmare is is burying their child um but i think i think we 
we learn to live with it because we learn that there are happy things in life too. And, you know, my oldest son, the one that just recently became a father. Uh, Six he, months ago. Okay. Yeah. He came into our life to, to me and my family's life, uh, you know, just, I don't know, nine or 10 months after my little brother died. And having that little baby and parenting him and a few other good things that went on in my life at that time um, was really, it kind of gave me something more to live for and realize, you know, life isn't all about death. Um, kind of like uh, old Spur says on that movie, The Man from Snowy River, one of my favorites. He says, there's more to life than death, Jim. And he's right. He's right. We're going to mourn the people who die and we're going to grieve for them forever. Uh, well, for the rest of this life. Um, but that doesn't mean we're going to always be miserable going forward. And I, I don't want to be like Queen Victoria who just dresses in black for the next 40 years and won't see people and stuff. No, no, we're already like past that point and it's only been a few weeks. Right. So, I want to I want to say a couple of things about this because this is um, a tender and personal episode. Um, first of all, a broken heart is really a strong heart. It's really an open, strong heart that breathes such love. Right. And I think when we're able to see. God's hand in our lives, we can come up with thoughts that are more in line with truth, that are more balanced with the whole trajectory of our lives, and more supportive to our healing. And I'd like to maybe just share one, if that's okay with you, Jeff. Okay. Um, the first week that was the hardest, after we found out Henry had passed, um, I continued making meals every day and um, feeding Jeff because he didn't feel like eating. And I, um, every morning we make eggs. Jeff has four, I have two. Like, so we have a half dozen eggs being cooked at our house every day on a very regular basis. And we haven't, yep. and I, we haven't, and most people haven't seen a, like a twin egg, like with two yolks in it for years. It's very rare. Right. Anyway, I saw one. And I didn't think much of it. I just thought, oh, cool, you know. Um, and then went about my day. A couple of days later, different carton of eggs, different manufacturer, because we just buy whatever's on sale because they're really expensive right now. And I get another one. So I take a picture. And then that day on Facebook, I see a friend who's posted about her own twin egg in her own uh, area of the country. She's in a completely different state than us. And she... She posted it, and then I mentioned to her that I had gotten two, and she said, oh, they're luck, and guess what? You have double luck. I'm like, how lucky is this situation we're in right now? Like, I don't see the <laughs> luck here. <laughs> and then a couple days later, I got a third one. Crazy, huh? And I sent her that picture, and she said, Kathy, you better pray about this and what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I chose to go and play for a wedding. Um, for the first time since we found out, knowing that, you know, weddings of, you know, young 
people are going to make us cry a little now, like, because we had hoped for our 24 year old son to have a wedding and to have grandbabies and, you know, all of those things that we lost that day. But I chose to go and do that anyway. And during that, I, that prayer was answered um, while I was playing and the sun was shining and the breeze was gently blowing and it just came to me that it was God's way, first of all, of showing his awareness of us and his intentions for our families. And it brings to my remembrance the fact that in 1993, Jeff lost his youngest brother. And then he had his first child, who he named after that brother. Right. And then in 2007, when none of us knew each other, I lost my youngest sister when my oldest was six months old. We were around the same age as each other, about 27, 28. Um, and then fast forward. I was 26, but yeah. Yeah, so somewhere between 26, 27, 28. Fairly newly married. First child. Corresponded with the death. And then, and of course, we wouldn't have expected this. It's not a club we would have wanted Errol, named after your brother Errol, to have joined. But, um, 2022, Carol lost his youngest brother when his baby was also six months old. And um, his first child, our first grandchild. And in all three cases, birth and death were accompanied. And for a while I've been thinking, well, how in, how does, because the scriptures typify life, right? I mean, they, they testify of things in real life. And so I've been thinking, well, in what way is life and death a twin? And the thought occurred to me that both are a remarkable part of our progression. Right. And that has to be emphasized because talking about cognitive distortions. A cognitive distortion, as we discussed earlier, is when your mind distorts reality, your brain distorts reality to protect you from a perceived fear. And that uh, oftentimes when when we're grieving, when we're in, in serious mourning, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking, and, and this isn't a kind thought or anything that I really wish would happen or anything like that, but it was, you know, I remember thinking, I've got so many friends, family members, and people who have five kids. You know, why couldn't one of them have lost one instead of me losing half my children in one day? And, of course, that's, you know, that doesn't take everything into account. I mean, I have two stepsons, so I have four children. Already, but Well, and you can't really compare ever because compare. we're all on our own path. Because, yes, this is Henry's journey. It's my journey to go through this. And it's not really for me to uh, to say when somebody dies. I mean, it's, it's not, 
something I have any control over. And so I think when we look at that we can have dirty pain for a little while, and sometimes maybe that really helps us to process, to just, you know, unload some of that dirty pain to a friend or family member or a counselor. Yeah, to say all the shoulds and the shouldn'ts that don't, that resist reality and, and can make us miserable for a time. And, but then as we start to emerge from that, choosing, choosing more supportive thoughts is really important. I want to say something kind of in conclusion that, that um, I think maybe will provide some hope. But Kathy, before I do, do you have anything more you wanted to, to add here? You know what? I just want to reiterate that after that initial mourning and you enter the grieving process that's more of the lifelong management of the loss, to hold on to any thoughts, observations, inspiration that is true, balanced, and supportive of your feeling. Lovely. Yeah, that's a lovely thought. And it's not necessarily an easy thought because it requires us to accept certain things that we would rather not accept in many cases. But that is part of the way God matures us um, and helps us to, to understand his mind and will and, and makes us into the people he wants us to be if we'll let it. I, there's a movie that I like, and it's kind of obscure, a B-movie probably, um, called Joshua. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Uh, it stars Tony Goldwyn, and he plays a character named Joshua who it's kind of a what if story. What if Jesus Christ showed up in your town and started doing all the things that Jesus Christ did when he was upon the earth? And so Joshua shows up in this town. He's not wearing flowing robes or long hair or a beard or any of that. He looks like a man from our time, but he starts doing the things that Christ would do. And one night, a woman who's a mid-single, a widow, shows up at the uh, barn where he's renting space and working and things. And she shows up there and, and they're talking and she starts to feel an attraction and she tries to kiss him and he pulls back and he says, no, I'm not the one. And she was embarrassed. She started to say, I'm sorry, I so misread. You don't have to be sorry. He says, my, my life is a mess. I just miss my husband. And, and Joshua says to her, your life's not a mess, Maggie. Your life is beautiful. And she says, my life was beautiful. It was whole. She picks up this crystal vase says, and smashes it on the floor and says, this is my life. And it can't be fixed. And she stomps off. I remember that. And, and uh, <laughs> you remember thinking that or you remember seeing the movie? I remember seeing the movie. Yeah. So. And thinking it actually after a divorce, that, that was rough. Interestingly, it was written by a Catholic priest who was terminally ill, the, the story was. Um, anyway, 
uh, as Joshua is about, uh, or sorry, as um, Maggie is about to, to leave town to move away for a new start, um, she goes to see the parish priest, Father Pat, and says goodbye. And she says, uh, he says, oh, by the way, I've got something for you. Uh, Joshua wanted you to have this. And, and it was an angel made out all of all of the broken pieces of that vase that she had smashed. So the point was that Jesus Christ, Joshua in this story, had taken the broken pieces and made something beautiful in Maggie's hand. In fact, that's what the priest says. He says, the guy takes a million pieces of broken glass and makes something beautiful out of it. And she says something whole. And I think when we're experiencing grief, it's, it's easy to think that our life is irretrievably broken. We know of another man recently who took his own life, a mid-single guy um, in his early 60s who had been through two divorces and a failed love relationship after that. Nice guy, good person, good, you know, good dad, all of that. Uh, but I think he just lost, he just lost hope. He didn't feel he had anything else to live for. And when we see the shattered glass on the ground, and that's all we see of our lives, it's impossible to feel hope. We forget how Jesus Christ can take those thousands of pieces of broken glass and make something beautiful out of it. So if you're having a cognitive distortion, like, things can never get any better. This is just the kind of thing that happens to me. You know, go through the list of things we sometimes tell ourselves when tragedy strikes. Well, remember that little figurine of that glass, of that crystal angel made out of a thousand pieces of broken glass. That's a more supportive thought. Absolutely. And I think that's the perfect way to wrap up this discussion, Jack. Yep. So remember, anytime. It's a great time for more loving your life. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to LilyPod and get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a positive review. We want to reach as many mid-singles and later married couples as possible, so please share this podcast with those you love. To access fabulous free content like written articles and YouTube videos on LilyDube, and to learn about our book Intentional Courtship and Lily Coaching Services, visit loveinlateryears.com. <laughs>